In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers, sisters, and dear respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for joining us once again in this series where we are going to trying to provide a little bit of a exploration and overview of the topic of the afterlife. And inshallah, for now, the, the logic is pretty clear what, what we've covered and where inshallah we're headed. Um, but as usual, uh, before we do our recap, where we had stopped in the last time uh, and the past couple of lectures, I think have certainly been uh, perhaps heavier in terms of uh, content and we've covered a lot. Uh, so uh, today is considered uh, to a certain degree an extension of the previous lecture or the previous two lectures where we addressed a number of issues that may have triggered a question. So today inshallah is going to be the answer to that question. So generally speaking, as a, as a matter of more formality, the, the title for today is Actions and Intentions. And we want to focus a little bit more on the intentions. And there's a lot that can be said, but this is, as you will see, inshallah, perhaps a, an answer to a question or a misconception that may arise, and to which we have already provided a little bit of an answer, but we want to make sure that it's well understood because it's something that is commonly and often uh, asked about. So uh, in terms of what we have covered and how this is all unfolding, generally speaking, the relationship between this life and the next life should be clear. And we said that if there is one thing that we want to keep in mind between those two realities, those two dimensions of the existence of a human being, it's that once you depart from this world, there is no more chance of inputting anything that can have any effect on the rest of your journey. You have one chance to introduce any new elements, to change your fate, to change your destiny, and this is the time you have in this world. You have one lifetime, and you have one life, and you are given what you are given in terms of opportunities in this world, and that's all you have. And uh, this already resolves a number of misconceptions that sometimes may arise about what happens after we die. And so, inshallah, all of that is clear. We're not going to repeat all of that. But that relationship, we said as a metaphor, one way to understand it is to have the image of the garden in mind, where you are planting in this world, but you only get to take advantage of the fruits of your labor in the afterlife. This world is only a world where you get to plant and in the afterlife you get to reap the benefits or lack thereof. That's the first point. The second point was, or the second theme that we addressed had to do with the type of relationship between actions in this world and how they become reward or punishment in the afterlife. So the relationship between act and deed and reward slash punishment in the afterlife. 
And just as a very quick recap, we said the main idea here is that it is not a relationship of convention. It is not a relationship of contract. It is a relationship of existence. And even more than existence, it's a relationship of identity in that the exact same thing that you put in is going to be given back to you. It's going to manifest itself to you, but in its true format as opposed to the superficial reality that you see in this world. Then we spent, I think, uh, uh, a little bit of time on the theme of faith, belief, and the intentions that come out of that. And so this was to understand what do we mean exactly when we say Iman, when we say faith and belief, what do we mean? And we explored the distinction between faith, for instance, and knowledge. And we said they're not the same thing. A lot of people think just because they know something, they understand it cognitively and conceptually, that that's enough, but that's not enough. Your heart has to submit to it. And if that is truly the case, then you should be able to see the repercussions of that in your actions. This should show, this should translate into action. It can't stop at the theoretical level of understanding and even thinking that you actually believe in it if this does not show in your actions. There's something missing and there's a lot more that can be said, uh, you know, especially after the, the last lecture where we uh, talked about the cycle, the, the, the reciprocal relationship, because we said what may arise as a misconception from all of this uh, and the conclusion that we reached, which is that what really matters is your faith and your actions are secondary. The misconception may be that someone may think that actions are useless and all that matters is faith. Well, I have the correct belief system and that's, that should be sufficient. There's no need for you know, the, this emphasis on prayer and fasting and charity and so long as your heart is good and it's carrying the right type of belief. And we said this is a very mistaken view and we kind of left it on that, but we came back to explore then what is the role of deeds? We understand now, so everything is entirely and completely dependent on your beliefs, okay? So is there a role for deeds and actions or not? And the more we explored that, the more we saw there is a role. And the role is, it's not a one-way relationship where only beliefs or only Iman matters and it has an impact on how you behave. There is the other way too, where depending on what you're doing, you're either increasing that faith, first anchoring it, really making it into a real Iman, and then increasing it, making it a lot better and a lot stronger. And we said this is kind of the, the image of the light in your heart. The more you do that, the more that Iman becomes part of you. And this, in consequence, opens the door for wanting to do more. And if you take that chance, if you take that push, that internal push that you're having to do more, this is when you start getting into this cycle. We called it a virtuous cycle, as opposed to the vicious cycle. The vicious cycle is the other way around. So there is a lack or a, a very weak belief, a very weak Iman that leads to less and less 
or worse and worse deeds and actions. And this in turn weakens the Iman further, takes the light away further and makes it only into darkness, which calls for more misdeeds. And this is a vicious cycle. You spiral down. Whereas the virtual, virtuous cycle takes you up. And we said this may seem like it's a metaphorical language, but when we look at the verses of the Holy Quran, we see that they support this idea. Allah subhanahu wa says that what goes to him is your belief that the Holy Quran refers to as al-kalim al-tayyim. What raises it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are your deeds, are your actions. So the deeds are what really matter at the end, but they don't go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without deeds. The belief, the iman is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to see, your inside, what you're carrying in your heart, in your soul, but that only goes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through your deeds. So this is where you see that both are necessary, that each one of them has a role to play and a relationship and not just one way. So inshallah, all of that is clear and we don't need to, to go back on these notions. Although if you have any misconceptions or misunderstanding about it, please uh, ask away today, inshallah. So as we said, and we're still exploring the, this topic of the relationship between this world and the next from all the different angles. But now we want to take just a quick break here in this lecture and make sure that there is one notion that is well understood because there's a misconception that may arise from it. And that's what we're talking about today. One of the very popular ideas nowadays is that the most important thing in this world is happiness. Everything is about happiness. The misconception that they, this may create when it comes to the topic of the afterlife, and it goes against what we've been talking about, is that someone may think that what really matters is your happiness, the happiness of other people. And where you truly see happiness at work is when you perform actions that increase the happiness of others. So this happiness, we're using it very loosely, very, in a very broad way. It could mean, for instance, doing things that are of service to others. They make their lives easier. They are certainly not generating unhappiness, lack of happiness. So we're using the term very broadly. In today's world, what really matters in the conventional way, the traditional way of seeing the world, what really matters is how much happiness are you generating for yourself and for those around you and ultimately for humanity. Your worth right now in this world is usually assessed by how much happiness you generate or how much unhappiness you generate. This is a criterion. So if that is the case, then when you look at people's behaviors, there are things that we've been talking about that should be very high on the hierarchy of your worth, but that suddenly lose a lot of value. And there are things that we've been saying are very secondary that suddenly become a lot more important. 
So in today's world, if happiness is the thing that is the most important, and you look at the behavior of someone, for instance, who gives money to charity, they have all sorts of philanthropic activities, helping people with health, with education, all sorts of things. For instance, with money, with time, they volunteer. They might discover things. They might experiment with things and then finally they, they discover something and it's put in the hands of scientists and they can produce all sorts of good things with it that make people's lives better, that increase the quality of life, that increase the level of happiness for other human beings. And this sometimes this touches the lives of millions. So what do we do with all of this? Ultimately, if you look at someone who is behaving in this way in this world, and after even they leave, sometimes it's during their life and it stops, but in a lot of cases, after these people leave this world, the good that they have put in remains for generations. They really contributed to the happiness of a large number of people, to the quality of their life, they increase the level of happiness in the world. Should this not be the main criteria by which we assess the worth, the value, the merit of someone? And if there is something like an afterlife, should this not be the main criteria based on which we can tell whether someone is going to have a good, happy afterlife or not? based on everything we see, based on how we understand human beings, this should be the main criteria. And here you guys are talking about beliefs, depending on what you believe. But your belief has nothing to do with increasing someone else's happiness or even your own. Your belief is your belief. So how do we deal with this? It seems to be mismatched and very counterintuitive based on how people think nowadays, at least. That's what we're trying to address today. So inshallah, the, I think the, the, the premise, the context is clear. And I think the misconception is clear too. The misunderstanding is clear that we have been talking about the importance of beliefs. And yes, deeds are important. They play a role, but they're secondary to belief. And now this contradicts two things. The first is that it's contradicting the notion that what really matters is belief. And secondly, we talked about the deeds that derive out of beliefs which may not necessarily be the types of deeds that these people are talking about. So the deeds that they're talking about are the ones that increase the level of happiness. The deeds we've been talking about are ones that are increasing your faith. They may be the same, but in a lot of cases, they may not be the same. So there's at least two ways, and there might be others, but let's keep it simple for now. There are at least two ways in which this notion, this way of understanding the world contradicts what we've been talking about until now. In short, and everything we're going to say is going to be in a way or another an explanation or a derivative of this 
In short, the answer to this is that the people who think this way fail to understand a distinction that I'm going to use the term just so that you have the term in mind. You have it in your back pocket if ever you need it. But we're going to spend time understanding the notion and not really get into the technicalities of it. But there's a distinction made in philosophy, sometimes in aqaid and beliefs, between what is called al-husn al-fi'li and al-husn al-fa'li. Loosely translated as the goodness of the act and the goodness of the agent or the actor, the one who performs the act. If you really understand and you keep this distinction in mind, then it will be very easy for you to avoid falling into this, this trap of focusing on the deeds and seeing that they may not lead to happiness and yet, or acts that do, deeds that do lead to happiness, but we're saying it doesn't lead to your happiness in the afterlife. It's only leading to happiness in this world. Where's the misunderstanding? Where's the mistake? Where's the issue here? Sometimes when we look at an act, any deed, anything anyone does, and this is generally what we all do, we focus on the act itself. So when I want to assess whether an act is good or how good it is, I look at the act itself. I will see, for instance, someone who uh, is, is performing an act of charity. They are volunteering. They're helping someone. They're giving money. They're giving time. So I look at an act of charity and I say, an act of charity is a good thing. Or I see an act of injustice and I think about the notion of injustice and I say, injustice is a bad thing. It's an evil thing. So I look at the thing itself, the act itself. And I say the act itself has a worth of goodness or lack of goodness. This is al-husnal fi'l. I'm looking at the fi'l. I'm looking at the deed, at the act. But sometimes we want to look beyond the act on its, by itself. We look, for instance, at the context of the act. In what context was the act performed? And when I introduce into this equation the context, then suddenly maybe the act that may have seemed to be good becomes bad. The act they may have seemed to be bad becomes good. Or at least the act that looked like it was very good is maybe a little bit less good or the opposite, because I'm introducing the context. As an example, for instance, I could say, for instance, someone who is in a position of leadership. So people, they know and others know that this is someone that everybody looks up to. They're kind of a role model. People are always wanting to see what they're gonna do. Even if it's unconscious, people will emulate. This person has influence. So if this person performs an act of charity, usually this will encourage others to also perform an act of charity, depending on the sphere of influence of that person. 
So in this case, we would say an act of charity in itself is good, but coming from this leader, it is even better because the, the good is gonna be amplified. But even without looking at whether it was actually amplified or not, I would say because of the context, because of who this person is, and if people know that this is what they did, then they will also be encouraged to do good too. Then this context changes, qualifies how much good there is in this act. If I look, for instance, at someone who plays sports by itself on its own, we would say that it's good. You're taking care of yourself. You're taking care of your body. It's excellent. If we look at someone who just had an open heart surgery and the doctor has told them that they should really take it easy and rest in bed for a couple of weeks and then start moving very slowly and without exhausting themselves, and you see them performing any type of sport a day later, suddenly that thing that was supposed to be good is now considered bad because of the context. If I look at the case of someone who is breaking a law, and you would say breaking the law in itself is considered bad. It creates chaos, it disorganizes society, blah, blah, blah. If the person breaking the law is a police officer or a lawyer or a judge, then it's a lot worse. Context in all of these cases. And then if we look at our religion, we see that there are many examples of this, and this is certainly taken into account. It's a lot more than just taken into account, but let's start by saying it's taken into account. When your religion says, for instance, that you're not supposed to be eating or drinking certain things, but then you are in a situation where it's either death, dying of hunger or thirst, or consuming that haram thing, that najis thing, suddenly you no longer just look at the act itself. The context not only makes it, not only removes the bad of the act, it becomes incumbent. The only good is to do the thing that was a second ago supposed to be bad. It's not that it becomes neutral. It's not that it removes the bad. It's that the only good becomes exclusively in consuming that haram food or that haram drink, because otherwise you would die. And so here you're, you're told, no, you have to preserve yourself. Okay, so this is where you start seeing there is a rationally and in our day-to-day -day lives, we apply this. But when you come to religion, you see also that the context does play a big role in looking at how much good or lack of good there is to an act. Let's take it a step further. In addition to the context, sometimes we want to focus specifically for an act, we want to focus specifically on one dimension. You look at the act, but you want to look at the act with the intention of the person performing it. The same act, you may do something. In one case, you're performing the act to defend yourself and you're harming someone else. And in another case, you're doing the same act 
but with the intention of harming someone else, not out of defense, out of aggression, out of abuse, the same act. But what was the intention behind the act? Now the intention now is changing everything. You perform a prayer, the same prayer. You perform it sincerely for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the intention that Allah accepts this prayer and this brings you closer to him. You get reward, thawab for it. You perform the same prayer, but now with the intention only of showing off, you're not really praying like the munafiqeen would do. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says they're not really praying, they're just pretending to pray. They're performing all the acts, the rituals of the prayer properly. It looks like a real prayer. What's the difference? The intention. Your intention is that this is a prayer that you're performing to Allah. Their intention is I'm performing this prayer. Not, of course, something you say with your tongue. This is something that you feel in your heart. Why are you performing this prayer? Is it so that someone sees you praying? Well, this is not a prayer for Allah. Is this just so that everybody thinks that you're just like them? You're part of this believer group? Or do you actually believe in what you're doing? Because in the case of a prayer, or generally in acts of worship, and that's how you distinguish acts of worship from other things. Because other things may also be obligatory, but you don't need to have the right in intention. They remain obligatory. If you see someone drowning and you go save their life, it's obligatory to go save their life. You don't need to have the right intention to do it. It's still obligatory to go save their life. You see the difference? Whereas when you perform your fast, when you perform your prayer, you have to have the right intention. In that case, whether you have the right intention or not, this is where you see that this is a ibadah, this is not a ibadah, but it's still an obligatory act. In any case, this is only to add, to emphasize the point that you can't just look at the act in itself. In theory, they can act in a very abstract way and say, therefore, this is the good. The act has intrinsic goodness, internal goodness in it. Anyone who would see an act like this would say this is good. And anyone who would say that act would say this is bad. Well, not so simple. When you add the context, it might change. When you add the intention, it might certainly change. It adds, it makes it better or worse. It might remove the good entirely and make it entirely bad or make it more good or something that is bad becomes more bad because of the intention. In fact, I would say, although this is not our topic and it puts us in a completely different stream of, of thinking, can you actually find an act without an intention and without a context? It doesn't exist. There are no the thing in itself. This is what we do to simplify life for ourselves and to allow ourselves to analyze things. So I take a complex reality and I isolate one item from it. For instance, from all of this context and the person and the intention behind it, I isolate all of that and I only look at the act. And I say, but the act of giving money as charity, is it good or not? I say, okay, the act in itself as a notion, the notion is good. That's to simplify things and allow me to analyze better. Human beings do that. 
But in reality, in the outside world, in the external world, external to my mind, an act and a notion of an act in itself does not exist. It's always performed by someone and it's always performed with an intention in a context. An act in itself does not exist in a void, in a vacuum. Ideas on their own don't exist. So park this, keep it in mind. If you understand this, then you've already resolved the issue that we're talking about. When someone says, if someone has performed an act and that act has increased the happiness of someone else, that's good. You're looking at one part of that equation. We're interested in the part you're not talking about. You are focused on something that based on what we've talked about, this is not what we've been created to focus on. This is secondary. You're only looking at the happiness that is engendered, that is produced from that act. We want to add these components that we have not, you have not talked about, that we want to look at. We want to look at al-husn al-fa'il. We want to look at the goodness of the one performing the act. In other words, we want to look at the intention that drove the act. We want to look at the motivation, the driver for the act. What pushed this person to give money? Why did they give money? Is it so that their reputation gets better? Is it so that they create a network? Is it so that they make more money because their popularity increased? Is it part of the world that they, they live in? So that's you know the price of doing business. What's the motivation for giving, performing that act of charity? Inventing something, exploring something, increasing the happiness, whether you're aiming to increase the happiness or it's a derivative, an offshoot of what you're doing. What was the intention behind it? Okay. So the idea is that when people look at the work of inventors, some philosophers, political activists, philanthropists, people who generally speaking are said to be doing a lot of activities that should increase the overall levels of happiness of other people. They think that automatically this means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reward these people with a good afterlife. Based on what we have been saying, this is not or should not be an automatic outcome uh, and a, a result of everything we've said. This is not the natural conclusion. In fact, it goes against it. You're now focused on the wrong criteria. You're focused on the wrong factor. In their case, they say, what we are looking at when we look at something and act and we see that the level of happiness is increasing and it's something tangible and we all experience that, we understand what is happening. This is something very real. This should be the criteria. You are insisting, you are emphasizing on the wrong thing. We see no value to the thing that you're talking about, which is the belief. And of course, from the belief, the intention behind the belief. It's secondary. To them, that is secondary. In fact, it could be completely insignificant. 
Because regardless of the belief and regardless of the intention, ultimately what is produced is good, happiness, better quality of life, however you want to define that. So the question is, how can someone do something that is so important, so significant as to improve the level of happiness of someone else, be considered so insignificant according to you, and the opposite? How can something that we are talking about, something, how can an insignificant deed we may talk about something like performing a prayer, fasting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or any of the other examples. And we finished the last lecture with a number of examples that may look like they're very insignificant, especially if you look at a, the scale of a society, the scale of a humanity, and you see that those deeds are not really impacting at that level. How can something so insignificant be given this much weight. This is really what it comes down to. These are the two questions. And of course, based on what we've covered until now, the truth is we've answered this question. But as we said, we're spending a little bit more time because this is, we're, we're unpacking it a little bit so that in case you're confronted with this or you're thinking about it, that you have the answer. The way to understand the issue is to look at a notion that we've talked about a lot before. We have to come back to it. And inshallah, it's clear. And it was the idea of why we are created. When we talked about the attributes of Allah and we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has wisdom. And we talked about ourselves and we said we're created for a purpose. And we gave different ways of understanding this purpose. One of the ways is to call it perfection. Human beings are hardwired to go after what makes them perfect, which has no upper roof, upper level. It's an infinite, it's an aspiration. It pushes you in a direction. Another way to understand it is to say human beings are trying to complete themselves. They, they have a hunger, they have holes in themselves that they're always trying to fill. And they have different dimensions. They have different needs and they are hardwired. They're created in a way that pushes them constantly to go meet the needs in every area. This movement of the human being in philosophy, especially in Arabic, if you study philosophy in Arabic, they refer to it as kamal. They say the human being is created in a way that he aspires for kamal, that we usually translate as perfection. Maybe that's not the best way to translate it. Maybe completion is the better way to translate it, the more accurate way to translate it. The human being is trying to feel complete. The issue is that the human being has been created in a way where that completeness will never be felt. What the human being desires and what the human being craves is infinite. There is no upper limit that you say, if I reach that, there are for some things. There are for, for instance, your physical needs. If you're hungry and you eat, you no longer feel hungry. 
especially for a specific amount of time, unless there's something wrong with you. Generally speaking, that can be met. But the real cravings, this is not the craving that distinguishes the humanity of the human being. You're no different in this than the animals. So we're not really interested in that. How do I know that if we're talking about goodness, if I go to look at a tree, a fruit tree, an apple tree, when you come to the tree, you see it growing up, it reaches a certain maturity, then it blossoms and it fills up with flowers, and then the apples start to appear, and then they grow, and then you can eat them. If we want to assess the completeness or the perfection or the goodness of that tree, I would say, I would come to it and I would see, are the apples there? The completeness of this specific tree, this type of existence is in producing apples because it's an apple tree. If it fails to do that, then it's imperfect. There are people who may come to that tree and they may say, because it's in the phase of maturity where it's blossoming and you see it full of flowers, there are no apples on it yet. And it looks nice and it smells nice. And they would say, this tree is perfect. This tree is not perfect because it has not produced what it was meant to do. But it looks nice. It smells nice, so you may be tricked. You're focusing on the wrong thing. In, in an existential way, if you want to be purist and look at the apple tree, the apple tree has not reached its completion. It has not performed its task in existence. Its completion means that because it's an apple tree, it must produce apples. And the better apples it produces, the better of an apple tree it is. Anything short of that existentially means that apple tree has not reached the purpose for which it was created. So what about a human being? If I come to a human being and I see what the human being is doing, I have to first understand, well, what is the humanity of a human being? Just like I asked the same question, what is the appleness of the apple tree? What is the completion of this apple tree? What is the perfection of the apple tree? What makes me say this apple tree is perfect and complete? It has performed the function for which it is created. And I have to do the same exercise for a human being. What is the humanity of the human being? And based on everything we've said, it should be clear, it can't be the body. We share our bodies with the rest of the animal world. There's nothing special about your body. In fact, it's a lot less special than the bodies of animals. They usually have a lot more capabilities than yours. You do have a body and it has needs and you have to take care of them. No problem there. But what makes a human being a human being is not anything physical. Even materialists will tell you that. They might explain it with material terms, but certainly the human being has needs that are not felt, are not experienced by animals. 
And we've talked, I think, at length about that. And I don't want to get into the, the possible jokes that we've talked about. You know, do you think that a, a dog, for instance, is sitting there contemplating art, for instance? Or wondering about their existence? No. Yet, this can consume a human being. This is all they think about and all they write about. Or for instance, their love for art and any type of art or spirituality and the need for rituals and how they feel when they live in a society, how they feel when they live in a family. And it's not just instincts, there's always more. It has to have meaning. The rituals on their own, if they're empty and they have no meaning for the human being, they might get depressed. That need for meaning is not really present in animals. Okay, so the more you look at this, you see there is something specifically human in the human being. Well, for our purposes, we're looking at all of this from the point of view of your eternal happiness and the afterlife from a theological perspective, which we believe is the only real perspective. Everything folds, folds under it. What is the humanity of the human being? What makes you a human being? What makes you a human being is your soul. And your soul has been given, yes, you have needs and you have wants and you have desires, but you've been given a free will. And with that free will, you're supposed to choose because you're going to constantly be put in trials, which is this life. It's just a series of trials. What are you choosing every moment? Are you choosing good or not? You are the sum of those choices, your exercise of your free will. This is what defines your humanity. This is who you are. The total of all of this is you as a human being. So for me to say, are you, how good are you? How perfect are you? How complete are you? This is what I have to look at. And this is what I have to assess. I don't look at the other things. The other things are good. They're, they're amazing. But they're not the primary thing. I have to understand what defines me as a human being. And then it will allow me to explain everything else as a derivative of that. As folding under that. In the case of the human being, just like the case of the apple tree, it was a very simplistic example. I should have chosen another example. In the case of the human being, you also have to, just like for anything else, you always have to look at the full potential of that entity. To know how good it is, you have to compare it to how good it can be. It's not enough to say, has the apple tree produced apples? Well, are they good apples? Are they big? Do they look good? Do they taste good? Do they smell good? And this is all from the point of view of, you know, the human being who's consuming that apple. But we can look beyond that, the appleness. We have to think about what is the appleness, the perfection of the apple. Whatever that may be, whatever we decide that that is, then we apply it. In other words, we want to see what's the maximum goodness that can be expected from an apple tree in a way that defines its appleness, its apple treeness. 
We have to do the same thing for a human being. It's not enough to say, have you exercised your free will? And have you done some good? The question is, now that I know what you are, what your essence is, which is you are a type of entity that has a soul with freedom of choice. You recognize good and bad, and your job is to choose the good every time. The next question becomes, well, what is your full potential? For me to say how much perfection you have, for me to say how much completion you've reached, I have to know first, well, what's the maximum you can reach? When I give you a grade on the exam, it's because I know this is on a maximum of 60 or on a maximum of 100, you got X. Well, what am I comparing you to? What is the full potential that you can reach? And then I can tell you where you are in that, or you know, not me, yourself, as you self-assess. And as we said, sometimes a human being may stop midway, focus on the right, wrong things, just like we did with the tree. We said our existence in this world is one big trial. You are created in this world to exercise your free will by making choices. This is where your humanity is going to be defined, those choices, the series of choices you made. Is it a step in this direction or in that direction? If this is understood, if everything we've said in the previous lessons is understood, then it means that you're not created for this world. You remember the examples we gave of someone who is supposed to go to the mall to shop and they think they start behaving in the mall as though they're gonna live there forever instead of going in to get their thing and leave. Or the person who goes to the doctor's office and then they focus on, I don't know, chairs or the waiting room and they're happy with that. The person who starts to focus on the deeds performed in this world and that's all there is, what someone performed in this world and what they did in this world and how it benefits this world you're focusing on the apple tree when it has flowers. You're not focusing, if you were told that the, the journey of a human being, the existence of a human being, let's say is 1 million years. And you live in this world for 80 years. 80 out of 1 million. And someone tells you, but during that 80 years, someone was really good. They did good things for those, for those 80 years. Okay, but what about the million other years that are left minus 80? What did they do for that? Oh, nothing, they didn't care about that. There's an issue there. This means that you have not taken into consideration the full existence of the human being, the full potential of the human being the purpose for which the human being exists, which is not this world. If you're sitting in an exam and the point of the exam is to write your exam, you go in, you go in at the end and you say, I didn't really write the exam, but I'm a really good guy. 
It's amazing that you're a good guy. You're not going to get any grades for being a good guy. In this setting, in the setting of the exam, you only get points by filling out the exam with correct answers. Or you go, you want to be part of, a, I don't know, an association of lawyers. You have to be a lawyer, you have to pass the bar and pay your dues. And then once you are a lawyer and you're accepted and you meet the conditions, you're part of that association. You can't just go there and say, I'm a really good guy. I know how to fix cars really well. Okay, it's amazing, good for you. But you're not gonna enter into the association of lawyers for being a good guy or fixing cars. It's irrelevant. It might somehow be relevant. You might say, well, if I'm really a good guy, why am I writing this exam? Isn't it so that I, I don't know, show that I'm successful and, 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 and ultimately to do good? Okay, yes, but that's not the point of this exam. This game is played in a certain way. It has certain rules, it has certain conditions. The point of the exam, the point of existing in this life is that it is a garden, that you plant your seeds here so that you go to the afterlife. You can't just focus on how much good in this world an act has produced, regardless of the intentions, when the entire point of existing in this world is your intention. Because your intentions make who you are, and that's all that matters for the rest of your eternity. Everything else is a means to those intentions. That you do good, that you use the money that you have, that you use the health that you have, that you use the means that you have, the knowledge that you have to do good. This is all means. For what? To see how you're going to use your intentions. But what really matters is the intention itself. Not the act. The act is secondary. And as we said, the condition for all of this is to have the right faith because that's what's going to give direction to your intention. That's what's going to make you want to do something. And then when you do it, the connection between your soul and the act, that's called the intention. That's what makes, makes you move. That's the intention. I'm, I'm skipping over some of the points so that we don't spend too much time on this. If you want to get into the very detailed specifics of this, what does this look like? What we've talked about until now is generally reachable by reason. But once you get to the level where, well, what does this concretely mean in specific acts and specifics, this is where we said human reason stops and you have to rely on revelation. Okay, so I'm not gonna expand too much on this. This is just a link to make here. In the, now, the, the terminology, the wording that I use until now is perfection and completion and all of that. This is so that we understand it in a rational way. If you go back to more religious texts, scriptures, narrations, you will see this is referred to in a different way. 
often we talk about, or you see references to, the nearness to God. All of this is done in a, in a philosophical way. We would say human beings are meant to behave in a way that makes them more complete, that makes them more perfect. Religion doesn't use this language. Religion tells you that what you're doing, which equals in philosophical language, equals to feeling complete, feeling perfect, being perfect. In religious language, this is being close to God. It's the same thing, but in one language, you're using philosophical speech, rational, logical speech, and in the other one, you're using theological, scriptural speech, which is oftentimes very imaged, very metaphorical, because it's more powerful. and makes human beings understand and imagine and work notions that are much deeper and richer than the very precise scientific terms we have in logic and philosophy. So the ultimate purpose of the human being, when you go back, that's when we said, you want to understand all of this from religion, from scripture. What does it tell you? It says the point, as we said, philosophically, is to feel complete. The point, religiously, is to feel close to God, nearness to God. So religion comes and says, and I will show you how. I will give you a program. I will explain to you in every circumstance, in every context, in every situation, how you're supposed to be. I'll make it easy for you. This is what you do. And this ultimately will bring you near Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is nearness to God, nearness to your creator. And there is no other way around it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you, I'm your creator. I know what you need. I've hardwired you this way. You want to feel complete? I will show you how you can feel complete. And that's only through feeling near me, feeling close to me, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. And this is through religion. Let me show you how, through revelation. I won't leave you all on your own. And this is a question we're going to come back to, inshallah, in a couple of lectures. To what extent are we just left with, you know, here's the truth and deal with it? Is it like that? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as we said, he explains to us in a religious language that the purpose of your existence is to move towards nearness of your creator. And this is through obedience. This is through worship. This is through following religious teachings. Here I wrote, but I don't want to get into that. So using what God gave you, because this is very dense, it's a tiny line, but using what God gave you to complete yourself, this is the, the philosophical language, which is all of religion, but we're saying it in a philosophical language. Using what God gave you to complete yourself or slash yourselves, because this can be taken individually and socially, collectively. And using everything, so that's everything. That's your body, that's your mind, that's your money, that's everything, nature, the world. Using what you have been given to complete yourself or yourselves. And this leads to, if you do it right, it can only mean seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why? Because human beings, as we said, they crave perfection. 
They want to feel fulfilled. They want to feel complete. But the human being's need for completeness is infinite. If you take specific dimensions of a human being, their need for power, their need for knowledge, if you really analyze this, you see it has no end. You can keep going and the desire for more is always there. In fact, this is what explains everything human beings do. Philosophers, when they want to explain what we do, every act that you perform, they say you're looking for your perfection or your command. Every little act we have said from the beginning, you're looking for, it's based on your belief system that you act. Why? Because you think there's something good in it for you. Okay, why? The next why we haven't really talked about, but it's this, because there's something that drives a human being to feel complete. And those things that we call good, it is good for you. It's because it makes you feel more complete. It makes you feel more perfect. And there is no end to this. And that's why when you remove the meaning from the act, when a human being realizes that this is an infinity, an infinite desire that can never be met, it leads to philosophies that we have not talked about. I was going to dedicate one or two lectures to it tonight. I decided not to, but we may come back to it if you want, on the meaninglessness of life or the philosophies that are called absurdist, that every, it's absurd to exist. There is no meaning to life. These are philosophers who were confronted to this question of what is the meaning of it all? And this question only became valid. It became a question, a thing to deal with for human beings when they removed God from the equation. Because there is no more truth beyond your life and your limited life in this world. And if there is no nothing happening after, you die, you live and you die, and that's all there is, the why will just remain there. Why? But why? And how are you supposed to live? Well, if there is no meaning, there is no answer to this question. How are you supposed to live? Anyways, that's a completely different topic that I wasn't, didn't want to talk about. All of this to say that there is a craving in the human being that can only be met. It's hardwired in us that we always want more of that which we consider good for us, whatever that may be. It's going to be different from, every, from one person to another. But you always want more of it, including fundamentally and ultimately that you want to live longer, you want to exist longer. Okay, so how... How do you deal with that? This creates a, an existential problem in human beings unless they connect to Allah. If you connect to an infinite source, you have a direct connection with the infinite source of Allah, with the infinite knowledge of Allah, of an absolute, of an infinite source. It resolves this issue for a human being. This is the constant desire of the human being. This is also the answer to, so what is the full potential of the human being that we were asking? How do I know how perfect you are or how complete you are? Well, we're saying your connection to an infinite source means that you can infinitely 
keep growing in nearness, in closeness to something that is infinite and absolute, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your creator. There's no end to how good you can be. And this is the difference between you and the rest of creatures, all of them. This is the true distinction of the human being that no one really talks about too much. We don't focus on this. Your greatest specificity, uniqueness, distinction is that you have the freedom to reach an infinite potential. You, which means that what is at your disposal is infinitely great. How much you can adapt, how much you can change, how high you can go has no limits. But of course, on the other side too, there's no limits to how low you can go. This is a price that has to come with this type of creature. And this is why the human being is considered honored by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the divine part of your spirit, of your soul. Because you can go that high. An angel is good in themselves, but they don't change. They don't go up and down. Nothing pushes them to become better or worse. You have the desire on both sides. Which one are you going to choose? The animal is created in a certain way. That's all there is. And they behave based on, their, based on what we know, of course. We don't know what else is going on in the animal world. The jinn have the potential, but not as much as a human being. So what's left? All that's left is a human being. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to create a creature that has that type of potential. And he's created the ones that don't have that type of potential. He's created creatures that have no potential at all to change. Some have a little bit, some limited potential, and some, like a human being, have an infinite potential. But it's entirely up to you. So if you understand all of this, this whole canvas that we're putting together, there's, this is all a test. You have been given the tools. You have been given this specific type of soul with the freedom to choose. And all of this potential, now the picture, all the elements of the picture are starting to be clear. Before I say how much goodness you have and how much goodness you have introduced in this world and based on this, we're gonna assess you. No, no, we need to take all of this into consideration. This is what we talked about when we said you have to look at the context and you have to look at the intention behind the act. So of course, at the end of all of this, if you are actually able to connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to go back to Allah like he wants you, which in short, without giving a full lecture on this, which in short means you are showing servitude to Allah. You are recognizing him as an absolute and an infinite. That you are a abd. That's the servitude. That's the point of religion to make you realize that in case you're not seeing it on your own just with reason, to understand the humility you're supposed to have before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore the connection of dependence, of reliance on Allah that you're supposed to feel all the time, the more you get that, the more you're connected to the infinite. 
And the more you lack that, and then of course, if you're connected in that way, that is gonna define all of your actions. You know where you are in all of this. You understand what you've been given and what you're doing with it. So this is the direction you're given to every act. If this is missing, this entire component is missing, and all there is is a human being performing acts, meaningless acts that go nowhere. Yes, they go somewhere in this world, in this 80 years, 100 years, whatever that you spend in this material life. Yeah, it may look like it has meaning here. But if we're looking at the entire picture, this is not what you were created to do. There's something really missing here. You've completely missed the point of your existence. You focused on the wrong things. Okay, so let's go through a number of verses in the Quran that emphasize all of this so we can start wrapping it up. One quick thing that I just wanted to go back to because we asked a question and we left it hanging. One of the questions we asked was when we look at some people who do good and bad in this world, what's the ultimate result of someone like that? We've understood the role of faith. We've understood the role of deeds. But we said some people might spend half of their life doing good and then the second half doing bad and having no faith. And the opposite. So what happens in those cases? And we said that we kind of left it hanging. It was one of the questions we're going to come back to. What really matters, if everything that we've said is clear, what really matters is then the state in which you leave this world. There's always a chance to go back and forth until the last breath. But that last breath is going to give the direction to the rest of your life. Because it recognizes that last breath that those things, A, B, C, and D, were they actually good things or bad things? Because of a certain belief that you have, you're going to think those things that I did were wrong and bad and away, taking me away from Allah. And I regret them. And I ask, even in that last breath, and I ask his repentance. And on the other side, if that's not the case and you're departing from this world with complete attachment to this world and thinking there is nothing or there's no God or there's no afterlife, there's no regret, what I did is what I did, then end of story. That's the state you leave in and that gives direction to everything you did too. But as we said, this, is, this can be a very dangerous logic. This, we can't rely on this logic. But this does allow us to answer the question. What really matters is the state in which you depart from this world. What type of belief are you carrying as you leave, as you exit this world? So someone who's smart is going to build up and make sure that they're going to try to reach their maximum state when they leave. But who knows in what state we're going to be leaving and whether we're going to be at that level. It would be a shame to reach the highest level of faith and iman that you have much earlier and then go back down later, right? In any case. So to go back to the verses of the Quran, that notion that 
you do have a specificity, you do have something distinguishing as a human being. The whole Quran talks about this a lot. And this idea of potential, because you have a higher potential than other entities, it could also mean that when you sink, you sink lower than them. You don't go back to the level of the animal because the animal can't rise to your level. This is the context. This is where Allah keeps telling us he is not looking at al-husn al-fi'li. He's looking at al-husn al-fa'il. Who is the act coming from? What's the intention behind the act? That's what's going to give your worth and the worth of the act that you performed. The Holy Quran says, truly the worst of beasts in the sight of God are the deaf and the dumb, those who do not understand or do not apply reason. Why? They're the worst of animals. They're the worst of beasts. Because they're not applying reason. So they are the worst of creatures in this way. And another one, Allah subhanahu wa says, we have indeed created for hell many of the jinn and mankind. So what got them there? They have hearts with which they do not understand. And they have eyes with which they do not see. And they have ears with which they do not hear. Such as these are like cattle. Nay, they are even further astray. Why? Because the cattle are stuck with this. They're not doing anything wrong. That's their level. But for you, who has a much higher potential, who have been given the tools, when you sink to that level, yes, it's an insult. Yes, you are sinking lower. You are further astray. And finally, surely the worst of beasts in the sight of Allah are the unbelievers, for they will not believe. Anyway, so let's talk a little bit about motivation and intention. So if everything that we've said is clear, then it means that the worth, the value of an act is going to be entirely based on the intention behind that act. What drove that act? What made you do it? That's what matters. I don't look at the act. The act is secondary. It's what's the intention, but I can never know. Between us, we can never know. This is why the hisab is only left to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Only he really knows what was the intention behind every act? And how much sincerity there was behind it? How much good was it? Was it mixed or not with other partial intentions? And so, of course, as we said, this is going to be your movement towards your perfection. The intention, the sincerity of the intention equals your movement towards perfection. Movement towards completion equals reward, eternal happiness. This is clear or it's confusing? I know it's getting late and I'm, go, I'm gonna go a little bit faster here to wrap it up. The acts in themselves, as we have said, they have an intrinsic goodness, but that in itself doesn't really matter because acts are never in a void. There's an intention from someone performing the act and that is what really matters. The intention, just to make it clear, the intention, the niyyah, is that which connects your soul to the act. That's if ever, you know, you're thinking about it and you need a little bit more clarity. That which makes the act, the act that is yours, it's your niyyah. That's your, you may want something and then it happens or not, but the will to act, the link between the soul and the act, that's your niyyah. 
the niya in this case, this is where the key from all of this, the niya becomes infinitely more valuable than the act itself. And this answers the question. If everything we've said is true, then this is the answer to our question, to the question that we may be asked. Why are we giving so much importance to beliefs and intentions when we can focus on how much good is being produced to people actually on the ground? It's because it's insignificant if ultimately the equation is entirely resting on the intention. You understand? So we're focusing on the entirely wrong thing if we're looking at how much goodness is produced. And of course, as we said, there could be materialist motivations, it could be showing off, all of that. So in the, in the wording that we used, whether it's the philosophical or the religious, whether you say it's nearness to God, or when you say it's so that you have greater perfection and completion, both of these languages. When you say, I performed an act so that people like me, well, how much completion for you does it get? How much closer now are you to God? How much more perfection do you now have? None. I performed the act to show off. I performed the act so that I do better business. I performed the act to create a network so that people talk about me after I leave. It's good. You might get that too. That's all you get though. This does not translate into nearness to God or completion or perfection of your soul. Brings us back to the example of the nice guy who didn't write anything on the exam. This is not what is going to translate into points on the exam. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O you who believe, do not annul your acts of charity through preening and injury. It's when you remind someone, بالمن والأذى. لا تبطلوا, do not annul. You, you did something good here. You went and gave money to someone to help them. That in itself was good. You had good intentions when you did it. Don't burn that act with what? By now going directly or indirectly reminding this person I helped you one day. Allah subhanahu wa says, do not annul, do not cancel out everything you've done by going and, as said, by preening an injury, like he who spends his wealth to be seen and believes not in God and the last day. It's very, very harsh language that Holy Quran is using. It's someone who is spending their wealth in good, they're doing great good, causing great happiness. But they're doing it with that intention. The Holy Quran says, like he who spends his wealth to be seen, which means what in the logic of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? If you're only doing this so that people see you, it's equal to and believes not in God and the last day. That's what it means. Yani, there is no God. You're not doing this for God. You're doing this for your own logic. Okay, well, you get whatever you're trying to do. You want to make that person feel that you help them, that you're superior to them, so and you're going to remind them of that. Yeah, you get that. This is how this world is created. 
but you get nothing in the afterlife. This will not give, get, give you points, regardless of how much good it can produce in this world. Right? The point is the sincerity, the intention. Al-husnin, fa'il, not fa'il. It's the agent, the act. It's performed by an actor. We look at the intention of the actor. His parable, this person, his example, his parable is that of a smooth rock with dust upon it. A downpour strikes it, a rain strikes it, and leaves it barren. So there's a little bit of dust on top of a rock. As soon as there's wind and rain, it becomes nothing. Nothing stays. No good actions are going to remain there. They're all wiped out. Another verse says, and those who spend their wealth, to show people, those who spend their wealth to be seen from others and believe not in God or the last day, and whosoever has Satan for a companion, has an evil companion indeed. Another verse, verily the hypocrites seek to deceive God, but it is God who deceives them. When they perform the prayer, they perform it lazily in order to be seen from others. And they remember God, but little. They don't remember God. And when they do, it's very little, and it's not really God. And then when they pray, it's not really prayer. It's so that they are seen. So this, these are all verses to emphasize this point. In the logic of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and the logic of the Quran, who cares how much good the act may look like it's producing? What matters is the intention behind the act and the connection that it gives you to God when you're performing the act. Any act. Do not be like those who left their homes boastfully and to be seen from others and who turn others away from the way of Allah. Woe unto those who pray, Surat al-Ma'un. Woe unto those who pray, those who are heedless of their prayers, those who strive to be seen and who deny kindness. Again, see the insistence? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keeps talking about this. Those who do acts so that people see them. The intention so that this is for God is not there. And I'm not going to go through all of these. I have a whole number of verses here in the Holy Quran. The Holy Quran on the opposite side, talks about those who seek. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah. Those who seek the face, literally, the face of Allah. In other words, this is an Arabic expression, meaning the, the good pleasure of Allah, the satisfaction of Allah. And we have that in a number of verses. So this is the opposite. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for instance, in Surah Al-Layl, and the post-pious, was say, Jannabuha al-Atqa, and the most pious will be made to avoid it, avoid hell. He who gives his wealth to purify himself and who does not expect any reward from anyone, seeking only the pleasure of his Lord, the most exalted. Uh, so he will be made to avoid hell. Another verse, Surah Al-Baqarah 207. And among humankind is one who sells his soul. He sells his soul seeking God's good pleasure. And God is kind unto his servant. This is 207 Surah Al-Baqarah. This is, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَشْرِي نَفْسَهُ يَشْرِي Because we don't use that term. In Arabic, yeshri means to sell. Yeshri means to buy. Yeshri means to sell. 
He sells his soul. For what? What's an exchange for what? Looking for something. For the pleasure of God, he sells his soul. This verse was revealed when Imam Ali slept in the bed of the Holy Prophet. When the Holy Prophet wanted to leave Mecca. And he came to Imam Ali and he told him, they want to kill me. So if they see that there's someone there, this gives me time, and they will think that I'm the one there, and then they will continue their plotting, and I will be, I will have left. Will you sleep in my bed? And Imam told him, well, is that enough for you to be rescued? Will you be safe? That's, that's his only question. He's not really concerned about, but what happens to me, and how am I going to deal with it? Does this mean that you are safe? Yes, that's it. And there are, we have narrations that say Imam slept that night, the whole night. Usually he stays up and he prays. That night he slept. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this verse. And this is a whole long story that we're, we're summarizing. Inshallah, another time we'll talk about it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this verse. There are people, Imam Ali salam, there are people who sell their soul to get what in return? Say, they sell their soul in exchange for the good pleasure of Allah. That's it. That's what he wants back. And that's why we have narrations from the Imams when they say, this is Surah Al-Baqarah 207, they say this is the price. The price of your soul is Jannah. Don't sell it for anything less. The Imams say. So, Imam he shows that, and then we have the testimony from Allah that this is the intention the intention is pure. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can reveal a Quran about it. The conclusion from all of this is that the value of the action is not determined by the action itself. The value of an action is determined by the context and by the intention behind the action. That's one. Especially in our case. As human beings, we have to remember, we are here on a mission. We are here on a purpose. There's a point to our existence in this world, and it is to prepare for the afterlife. Anyone who only focuses on this world, they're only focusing on the apple tree that has flowers. And they say, this is a perfect apple tree. Well, it hasn't produced the apples yet. The point of the apple tree is to produce apples. The point of the human being is to reach nearness to God which we can see in the afterlife. Good for you that you're producing great goodness in this world. This is not meaningless. But the point is to produce it with the intention that it gives you nearness to Allah. The same act, as we said, the same act has to be produced. Except that the intention is that you do it to bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you've given full meaning full direction. And that act is a step towards your completion, your perfection. You pass the exam and you got the, the grades. You're not just a good guy. And of course, as we said, service to others in this way, service to others is no different than any act of worship. If you perform an act of worship, an actual act of worship, like prayer, as the Holy Quran says, if you perform it with the intention 
then this is only to be seen by others. It becomes worthless. If you are performing it so that it brings you closer to God, no different. You're giving money. You're helping others. You're discovering a cure. You're creating a tool that will help half of the world do something a lot easier. Great. What's the intention behind it? The intention is there, just like if the intention is there when you give your charity, when the intention is there when you perform your prayer, it's accepted. Accepted means it brought you closer to Allah. Qurbatan il Allah. Taqareeb, to bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's it. It means it's accepted. Otherwise, the nearness is not happening. You're moving in the wrong direction. So if you're moving towards this world, you get this world. The final point here is that, inshallah, the spiritual ramifications of this are also clear. So I think the theological ones, we focused on the theological, theological, the aqid and the belief, and what this means for afterlife. What's a correct belief system and what does it mean? That's what we're focused on. There's, of course, a spiritual dimension to all of this, which is beyond all of this for our day-to-day actions. It means we have to be very cautious and careful about our intentions behind every act. Because that's, if this is true, and inshallah you agree that it is, the only thing that matters are your intentions. How sincere are you? How much quality is there in your sincerity, in your intention, not in the ritual act you're performing? The ritual act is good. Sometimes you repeat the ritual act enough that it puts you in the mood and creates the right intention. But you need to get to that right intention because without that right intention, the act is worthless. Okay, so inshallah, this point is clear. So I'm gonna stop here. I wanted to talk for five minutes about Imam Zayn al-Abdin since it's his birthday, but I will only wait after your salawat to assess the level of energy and see if we do that or not. So do we take five minutes for talking about Imam Sajjad salam? The past few days were the, the birth anniversaries of Imam Hussein salam, Al-Abbas salam, and Imam Sajjad salam, which was yesterday. And you know, the, it's way too late to talk too much about this. Maybe one thing to mention about Imam Sajjad salam for us is that maybe one thing to mention very quickly about Imam Sajjad. One thing that perhaps, unfortunately, we don't talk about enough is Sahif al-Sajjadiyya of Imam Sajjad So I thought at least we can maybe take a couple of minutes just to highlight a couple of things about the Sahifa Sajjadiyya without going, because this could easily become a, an hour or two long lecture. I will really make it very short. If you go to the manner in which Sahifa Sajjadiyya was actually transmitted to us, there are hints in there that give you an idea of the greatness of this thing, of this document that we have. If you go to the way in which it was transmitted to us. There is a man by the name of Al-Mutawakkil ibn Harun. He was one of the Sahaba of Imam al-Sadiq, a companion of Imam al-Sadiq. 
He says one day he was traveling and he was carrying a dua from Imam al-Sadiq and he met a man by the name of Yahya ibn Zayd. Zayd is the son of Imam al-Sajjad Zayd ibn Ali ibn al-Hussein. This is his son, Yahya. Zayd al-Shaheed, they call him. He was killed by Al-Amawiyyin, and then they dug up his body and they hung it for years out of revenge. That's how much they hated him. This was after the events of Karbala and the revolutions that began. That was one of them. He led one of them. The son of Imam Sajjad called Zayd ibn Ali, Zayd al-Shaheed. So this man, Mutawakkil ibn Harun, he says, I encountered his son, Yahya, who was also killed in the same way, by the way, later by the Amawi. He wanted to lead, continue the revolution of his father. The Imams had told them, don't go, don't make a revolution. But they did not listen. Zayd and his son and the Hassaniyya, some of the descendants of Al Hassan continued to try to do uprisings against the Amawiyin at that time. So when he encountered him, there was a back and forth. I'm sparing you the details so that we, we don't stay too long. At the end, he tells him, do you have, are you carrying anything from Ja'far ibn Muhammad? He's his cousin, Imam Sadiq He tells him, yes, I have this. I have a number of things written from the dictation, from the recitation of the Imam, including this dua. And the Imam has told me, Imam Sadiq has told me, that this is the writing. It comes to him from his father, Imam al-Batr, which comes to him from his father, Imam Sajjad. So Yahya bin Zayd got very happy with this. And, he, and the, this man tells him, this is part of a Sahif al-Kamil. So this was a prayer he did not have. This man, as we said, if you understood, this man is a grandson of Imam Sajjad, right? So he became very happy. He said, this is something I've asked Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq to give me for a long time, and he has refused to give it to me. And now I have it. In any case, so he's, this man, the, the Rawi says, I regretted giving it to him because I didn't want to do anything the Imam didn't want me to do, but the Imam hadn't told me not to share with anyone. So he says, he called uh, a person there. He told him, transcribe this very, very clearly so that we can read it later. I will try to memorize it as I have memorized the rest. And then he, he asked the man, what has Ja'far ibn Muhammad said about me? And this man tells him, that he tells him initially, I don't want to, I don't really feel like telling you what the Imam has said. He tells him, no, no, I insist. I really want to know. Don't scare me. If you think I'm afraid of death, I'm not afraid of death. Tell me what it is. So the Imam tells him, the Imam, this man tells him, the Imam has told me you will die like your father. You will be killed in the same way. In any case, so the man says, now that I know that I'm going to die, I'm going to do something I would have never done. And then he calls his son and he tells him, bring me the hidden or the preserved book. And he brings a book to him that is concealed and he says there was a seal on it. So he kissed the seal and then he cried and then he opened it. And there was a book inside and he took it out and he rubbed it on his eyes. And he said, this is of my father Zayd and the dictation or the recitation of my grandfather, Imam Sajjad Zayn al-Abidin. And why is it preserved? He tells him, he tells him this has to remain hidden 
Because if any of the Umayyad know and they find it, they will take it. They will never let this survive, this document survive. It was forbidden at that time to write anything. And this is a book of the dictation of Imam Sajjad who was closely under the surveillance of the Umayyad. So in any case, he tells him, because now I know that I'm going to die and whatever Ja'far bin Muhammad says is true, then take it and go give it to, and he names two of the sons of Abdullah ibn al-Hassan ibn al-Hassan. So the descendants of Imam al-Hassan that they're working with, he tells him two names, Muhammad and Ibrahim. He tells him, go give it to them and tell them this is your part of the inheritance and they will know what it is. So he says, I took it with me and I went back to Medina where Imam Sadiq was. And he told the whole story to Imam Sadiq. Again, I'm sparing you the details. So Imam Sadiq tells him, I only did not want to share it with him, not because there's anything wrong, but because I was trying to hold him back with it. You know, so long as I don't share it with him that he doesn't do anything and then he's not caught carrying it. And then they know that they are part with us and so on and so forth. And then Imam al-Sadiq tells his son, Ismail, in, in the narration, he tells him, bring me that book that is hidden. And so he brings the book that is hidden. And this man says, I asked the Imam, may I read it? And he, the Imam answered and he told him, you are worthy of seeing it, so you may read it. And so the man says, I opened both. The book that I have brought from Yahya ibn Zayd and the book that was with Imam Sadiq I opened both and I compared them. And there was not a single letter that was different. And this was, Imam Sadiq told this man, he told him, this is the writing of my father, Imam al-Baqir Muhammad, and the recitation or the dictation of my grandfather, Imam al-Sajjad Ali ibn al-Husayn. And I was a witness. So I was there when he was reciting it to him and Imam al-Baqir is writing. And then it was preserved. The Imams know that they need to preserve this. Okay, so Imam al-Sajjad, you can imagine now, either there was one instance or there were two instances where he calls, in one case, one of his sons, Ali uh, uh, Zaid, and in the other one, Imam Muhammad al-Baqir. And it could have been the same event where he had both of them writing, or it could be two different events where he recites the Sahih al-Sajjadiyya to them and they write it, and they close it, they preserve it, and they seal it. And we have other narrations that tell us later, this is in the first, one of the first narrations that we have. This is the time of Imam Sadiq If I continue, he says, when I compared it, the Imam السلام, took that book and he rubbed it, he did the same thing. He rubbed it on his eyes as a blessing. These words that come from Imam Sajjad with the writing of Imam Al-Baqir. This is Imam Sadiq doing this. And this is, to us, I think there's a lot that can be said just with this, without even going further. Just these events, they highlight the difficulty with which this document was preserved. The difficult conditions that the Ahlul Bayt had to deal with to preserve this, and they still did. And clearly they knew that this was risky. Of course, the 
the narration continues, the man told him, can I now go and give it to the descendants of Imam al-Hassan He told him, no, have them come here. And so they came here and Imam al-Sadiq spoke to them and he told them, this is your inheritance from your cousin Yahya ibn Zayd. I will give it to you on one condition, that you do not leave the Medina with it, carrying it. Because if they catch you and they see that this is with you, they will kill you right away. The Imam doesn't want them to get harmed because of this. And of course, they did not listen to the Imam and they were both caught and killed later. But the Imam is trying to preserve it this way. It's to this extent that there is a risk to preserving this document. But the Imams did everything they could to make, keep it intact, keep it preserved. And you see these two lines of lineage and the Ruayat later generations were told it remained with the Saad al-Hassaniyah, the, the, the Hassani lineage of Imam al-Hassan throughout the generations, one copy. And one copy was with the lineage of the Imma. And they would try to meet once a year and they would compare the two copies to make sure nothing has happened to them. And this remained the case for generations until it was finally okay to publish it and to make it more open. And this is the document that today we call Sahih al-Sajjadi. If you understand this, the difficulty with which it was preserved, the difficulty with which it was guarded, the risks that these people took, and how the Imams, if you have an Imam who takes a piece of writing and rubs it on his eyes for a blessing, what does this tell you about this writing? And we have it, all of us, we have it. We have its translation, it's sitting in our homes. We rarely open it, we don't know what's in it. And this is without even going into, you know, everyone, inshallah, one day we can spend some time with some, at least, of the adaya of Sahih al-Sajjadiyya and explore them, but they're available. The translation is there online, and I'm sure very easy to buy. And if you can read it in Arabic, even greater. There's entire masters and PhD theses written on different aspects of a Sahih al-Sajjadi. For instance, the eloquence of Imam al-Sajjad, the wording that he chooses, or how you can discover a lot of his personality traits from his adiyya. And the whole, basically, Sahih al-Sajjadi, there's a reason why a lot of our scholars we refer to it as Zabur al-Muhammad, the Psalms, the equivalent of the Zabur of Dawood salam why because they say these are the teachings of Islam contained in one place. You have all of spirituality. You have some of the ad'iyah that give you your entire life plan. Dua Makarim and Akhlaq talks about every aspect of life in one little dua. Maybe not so little, but a little dua. So inshallah, this is just a, as a reminder that the Sahih al-Sajjadiyah is there. These are the days of Imam al-Sajjad we can at least look into it, maybe in this month of Sha'ban, try to remember to read a couple of the ad'iya in it or the translations to see what they say. Some of them are extremely short. It would not even take you a minute and a half to read. And some of them are a little bit longer. Or, you know, take a little bit of time to just look at the, the contents, the table of contents of these ad'iya to see what they cover. And you'll see that they really cover every aspect of life your relationship with Allah, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with your family members, with people around you, how you're supposed to be. And this is also a reminder how the Imam has a prayer for every circumstance that you might go through in life. 
you'll see a dua for that. And this is a good reminder. There's a question that we often have, which is what does it mean to have a relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? A very easy answer is go back to Sahih al-Sajjadiyah, you'll find an answer there. A lot of people say, is this dua authentic or not? Is this salah authentic or not? Is this ziyarah authentic or not? You don't need to ask that question of Sahih al-Sajjadiyah because you know it's authentic. This is how it came down to us from the Emma. It was preserved. It's a very strong transmission line all the way back to Ahlul Bayt So at least you're sure and you know uh, certain that this, these are the words of Imam Sajjad So inshallah, this is a quick uh, encouragement for all of us to go back and at least peek into that amazing book. Are there any questions, concerns, comments about anything we covered today or any other day? Yeah. That's the whole point of what we're saying. We're not saying don't work for this life. In fact, do everything you can to build this life. And as we said, inshallah, we're going to come back to this as a topic and explore it and see what our religion says and how much importance our religion gives to building this world and being good at everything we do in this world. But what's the intention? But you can't build this world without building this world. So you have to build this world, but what's the intention? You're doing the same act as the other person that we may be describing. Someone who's being philanthropic and helping others, someone who is you know, building things and exploring things and discovering things and building things, all good. But what's the intention? Are you doing it just for this world? Or is there a dimension at least of what you're doing that is meant for your afterlife? that is meant to bring you closer to Allah in your own way. How is this bringing you closer to Allah? Whatever it is. If it is, this is an act of worship. You have to see this as a sacred endeavor. You do it with that intention. The more you make that intention sincere to Allah, this becomes a sacred act that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to do because it's an act of worship. It doesn't matter what it is. And inshallah, we're going to go back to that when we talk about the whole theme of what our religion says about this world. So that's a short answer.